turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Esther chapter 4. Children, remember we're doing this story of Esther, the queen out in Persia, isolated from uh, the promised land. She's become, uh, although a Jew herself, she's become the wife of King Ahasuerus, who's the Persian emperor. He reigns over most of the known world of the day. And last week we saw the story took a bit of a turn for the worse. Um, Harman, uh, who's the chief minister, the prime minister, uh, has decided that he's going to kill all the Jewish people, uh, which will include, of course, Esther herself, although no one knows that Esther is a Jew. And he's done so because Mordecai, Esther's cousin, has refused to bow before him. So that's where we're going to pick up the story, this, um, this letter proclaiming that in about a year's time, all the Jews will be killed, has been sent out across the empire. And everybody outside the palace is thrown into mourning and confusion. So Esther 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries, for the destructions of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. When Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. 
I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Uh, We live in a fearful world, don't we? I don't want to sort of stir things up on a Sunday morning when you've come to church to hear about life and grace and peace and hope. But all of us, almost all of the time, have things that make us anxious. Uh, They might be real threats or they might be largely kind of whipped up by the the storms in our minds. But we are an anxious people. Uh, I saw just this week uh, the Office of National Statistics um, put out a little sort of infomercial uh, for students 39 percent of students last year it was uh, reported some form of anxiety it's incredibly high is it 39 percent that's gone up apparently hugely post-covid perhaps unsurprisingly because so behind so many of our anxieties is the anxiety of death perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're new to church you've been dragged along or popped your head around the door uh, sort of out of interest not quite sure what you believe Death is something we don't talk about, isn't it? It's, it's not there in our kind of chit-chat in the pub or uh, over dinner, but, but we know it is the one reality of life. One in one, die. I've heard it said that the Victorians, as a society, were very hesitant, were very kind of squeamish about talking about sex, but were obsessed with talking about death, and that we're the exact opposite. We're a society obsessed with sex. But try and hide away from death. Well, whether it's death itself or just other anxieties, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to be able to face life in confidence, to get up in the morning not shaking with fear, not terrified by what the day may bring, but to be able to walk at peace and calmly uh, into the day ahead. How does that happen? Esther 4, I think, is going to help us with that. It's not going to happen just by telling us to be brave. Um, I quite like reading uh, World War II adventure stories. I've basically never grown up. Uh, kind of stories my dad gave me as a kid. And they're, they're, full of, uh, they're full of brave people doing incredible things. And as you read them, or as I read them at least, I think there's, there's just no way I would have done this. No way I've got the courage, the bravery. Um, setting an example often isn't enough to make us follow, is it? Apparently the Olympics, every Olympics, every big Olympics, they, they, they build the stadia and they invest hugely and the governments, all the, same, all the governments say the same thing to their peoples. It's worth it because it's going to bring a, a huge uptick in involvement in sport. Just think how many people after this are going to be rowing and firing bows and arrows and, and apparently at absolutely zero Olympics has the uptake ever increased. Good examples are not enough. But Esther 4 gives us something more than that. So again, whether you're a Christian who struggles with with anxiety, fear, perhaps fear of death in particular, or perhaps not a Christian and just wondering, is there any way to walk through life more confidently than Esther 4 has good news? Let's dive into the story. uh, And as we we pick through it, uh, hopefully we'll see uh, the confidence that it brings. Death threatens everywhere at the beginning of the story. Esther 3 has told us that this decree of death has gone out against God's people into every province from India across um, sort of uh, the stands across southern Europe, uh, down into uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And in our first scene, which is verses one to three, it's summed up by, by dust and ashes. 
Uh, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, has learnt about this decree, and so he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes in the Bible are a sign of a bit like a living death. You're casting yourself back down into the ground. If you've ever been to a funeral, you take a funeral, um, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So covering yourself in dust and ashes is a bit of a bit like saying to God, "I'm I'm dead." And indeed, if this decree goes ahead to slaughter all the Jews in the empire, Mordecai will be dead in a matter of months. But interestingly, do you, know, do you notice, children, where he can't go? See where he can't go? He goes, verse 2, to the entrance of the king's gate, but no one's allowed to go into the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and ashes. He's in the, the town of Susa, which is one of the four capital cities of the Persian empire. And normally he works in the king's gate. Now, the king's gate isn't just a kind of little gateway you go through. It's the, the kind of center of power, the citadel, a bit like the, the houses of parliament and number 10 Downing Street and the army barracks and Buckingham Palace all rolled into one. Normally he works in there, but he's not allowed in. Now he's wearing sackcloth and ashes because the palace is meant to be a place of life, of joy, of happiness, of light. And King Ahasuerus doesn't want reminding of death and darkness in fact the last thing we saw the king doing if you look at the last verse of chapter three just above where we started reading as the the couriers went out with this decree of death execution slaughter the king sits down to drink to banquet it's the banquet word again the book of esther is full of banquets and so whilst down there in the kingdom death misery mourning darkness reigns up in the palace well it's feasting food wealth light Uh, it's luxury perfume it's a place for the beautiful the thriving the young the pretty wine song karaoke they're doing it all whilst out in the empire mourning and weeping Uh, that is by the way very often the dynamic in the world. Uh, In many, many parts of the world, uh, perhaps um, less so in the UK at the moment, but maybe it's coming, but in many parts of the world, it is God's people who are mourning and struggling whilst those in power are partying, living in luxury and wealth where God's people are persecuted, imprisoned, threatened. So the first verse is introduced us to this, this lamenting, this weeping, this death, this sackcloth and ashes. And then we get four kind of back and forths between Esther and Mordecai. Four conversations, you might say, although the first one has no words. Each conversation gets longer and more detailed. Uh, Mordecai can't get in to Esther, partly because she's the queen and she lives with all the other women. Uh, Ashrosh has got all sorts of uh, women lined up in his harem and... and um, People can't just wander in there, especially men, but also because he's wearing sackcloth. And so the whole conversation takes place via these messengers going back and forth. There's a reason for that we'll come to in a bit. So let's look at the four exchanges. The first one's just there in verse four. Um, Esther hears that, that Mordecai is walking around in sackcloth and ashes. She's upset. He's her cousin, her elder cousin who raised her. So she sends him some clothes. 
Um, essentially, she's saying, cheer up. I don't know what's wrong, but cheer up. Okay, life's good. Everything's going well. It's a very shallow solution from Esther, first up. Uh, everything will be better, Mordecai, if you just sort of perk up a little bit. Uh, in the aftermath of September the 11th, there was a huge uptake in shopping and spending in New York City. Uh, after the, the, the biggest sort of death toll on one day in the city in living history, how did the populace respond? Spent. It's a kind of denial of death thing. No, we're still young, we're active, we're beautiful. Death can't grab us. It's a delusion, illusion, but it's a deep instinct. Mordecai's not having it, though, so he rejects the, cho- the clothes. He won't take them. And so in the next conversation, in verses 5 through 9, Esther, she digs a little bit deeper. She thinks she'd better learn why. See, she sends the, the, the eunuch, um, Hatak, uh, to order what is going on and why it is. What, what's going on, Mordecai? And so Mordecai explains down there in verse 7, he explains the death sentence. It seems Esther doesn't know about it. She's up there in the, the palace of light and luxury and doesn't understand the darkness going, down, uh, going on down there in the world. Uh, he explains that all her people are going to be slaughtered. He explains that uh, Haman has offered a huge sum of money for the privilege of slaughtering all God's people. By the way, do you remember when Haman offered it to the king? The king said, no, no, keep the money. Turns out that was a bit of a kind of a bit of a farce. He's taken the money. And Haman sends back, sorry, Mordecai sends back to verse eight, a copy of this letter, this letter that has been sent across all the provinces saying God's people will be slaughtered in the 12th month of the year. She holds in her hands at the end of this conversation, the written evidence that all her people will be slaughtered. And notice again why Mordecai appeals to her. Verse 8. He sends this eunuch back to, to beg her to plead with the king on behalf of her people. Remember who you are, Esther, Mordecai says. Remember who you are. You are one of us. You might be living in the palace in luxury and glory, in perfume and beauty. But it is your people who are down in sackcloth and ashes. There is a gap between them, between Mordecai and Esther now. In fact, between Esther and all her people. And that's what the intermediaries, I think, represent. That's why the whole conversation is so sort of long and stilted back and forth with these intermediaries. It's trying to emphasize that, that she is totally separate from this. She's up in the ivory tower having the time of her life. Whilst down there in the gutter, they're weeping and mourning. Uh, out in the cold. So that's round two. Uh, Round three of the four is verses 10 through 14. She now understands what's happened. She understands that she's been asked to go before her husband, Ahasuerosh, and ask for for mercy. It's easy, Esther. Just go to the king and say, look, repeal the decree or or let my people off. But Esther knows there's a problem. Children, do you see what the problem is? It's there in verse 11. Esther explains that you can't just walk in to the king. If you go to the king and haven't been invited, then the punishment is death. Now, that seems extraordinary to us, doesn't it? What kind of sort of psychopath runs his court like that? 
Well, a Hashroth does. And there are secular histories of historians like Herodotus, um, who, who, who mentions this. And he backs up the same point. He says that the, the, the Persian emperors had seven friends who were allowed to approach unannounced, but nobody else on pain of death. Another example of kind of ancient history and archaeology backing up uh, the Bible. Even Esther herself cannot approach without being invited first. And she's not been invited for 30 days. Now remember what this king is like. If you've been with us through the story, he's going through a different woman every night. He's unlikely to have just been alone for 30 nights. And we're now about 12 years into the story. Esther is no longer, longer the sort of brightest, youngest thing in the court. The king has already got rid of one wife at the beginning of the story, Vashti. Maybe Esther's time has come, 30 days without seeing your husband, some time. Uh, there's a glimmer of hope. Again, children, did you see that? that? That It is possible that if you approach the king, he might let you off. If he extends his gold scepter, children's like a, a scepter's like a golden stick, and if he points it towards you when you come towards him, then he might allow you to live, but you don't know. And so you can hear Esther sort of sending the message back to her cousin almost crossly. Are you seriously expecting me to go and risk my life? If I walk into the courtroom and say, please let these people go, he might kill me. He doesn't even know that I'm a Jew. Esther seems to have kept very quiet about this. She hasn't been like Daniel and his friends. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? They make a big deal about being Jewish. They insist on following the Jewish food laws, even when they're in, in exile. Uh, in the in the court uh, of the Gentile emperor. They insist on praying, or Daniel insists on praying in front of the window um, to his God, even when he's been commanded not to. They make a big deal about being different, even when they're in exile. Esther seems to have just merged into the background, kept her head down. Are you seriously expecting me to do this? And hence the last conversation, uh, verses 12 uh, through to the end. 13 through to the end, sorry. Mordecai told them to reply, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. There's a caution there. Do you think you're going to escape, Esther? It's a threat to some degree, isn't it? People over the years, over the centuries, have sort of gone back and forth on where's the threat from? Who does Mordecai think will get Esther? Probably most likely it's Haman, eventually it will come out that you're a Jew. Don't think you'll escape. But there's also confidence. Verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise. Will arise for the Jews from another place. He doesn't know where. He doesn't know how. But he does know that God's people aren't going to get wiped out. Haman has this confidence. Now, he's not a prophet. Children, do you see this? He's not... He's not someone who's got a dream from God or a vision or a word from God. He's not someone God has appeared to in a burning bush. He's not written on the wall like we get in, the, in, in Daniel. He hasn't got a donkey speaking to him like we get with the story of Balaam. In fact, God's name is not mentioned all through the book of Esther. Mordecai doesn't have special information. But he does have the Old Testament, as we would call it. We're towards the end of the Old Testament story by now. And he knows God has promised that he will rescue the Jewish people and that from the Jewish people, a saviour for the whole world will come, a Messiah. And so 
Mordecai reasons quite rightly that it is impossible that the entire Jewish nation is now going to get wiped out. God can't lose. God can't break his promise. So he doesn't know where salvation will come from. He doesn't know how it'll happen. He just knows that somehow it's not going to be that all the Jews are going to get wiped out. He trusts God's covenant promise, in other words. And so he cautions Esther. He professes his confidence and then he issues a challenge. End of verse 14. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows, says Mordecai. Maybe this is why God has made you queen of the Persian Empire, he says to his cousin. Who knows? Mordecai doesn't know. Esther doesn't know. This is really crucial. We, we know the end of the story. You might know the end of the story. If you've read the book of Esther, you might know what happens to Esther. But at the moment of her taking the decision, she doesn't know. This is not a promise. When you go in to the king, it'll be okay. Because God always rescues his people. Nothing really bad ever happens to you if you trust God. That is not the promise. Remember that great chapter in Hebrews 11? Uh, It's a chapter all about, you know, by faith. So by faith, Abraham, when he was asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac, offered him up. And we know what happens. He doesn't actually end up having to kill his son. By faith, Noah, when the the floods sweep over the world, by faith, well, Noah escapes. He's not killed. He builds the ark and he's rescued. Uh, By faith, Rahab. Children, do you remember the story of Rahab, the the woman in in, in Jericho and the Israelite spies come in and she helps them. She switches sides and by faith she lives. And we love those stories. Daniel, he doesn't die in the lion's den, does he? Daniel's friends, when they're thrown into the fiery pit, there's an angel walking around with him and they're, they're kept alive. They're rescued. It's all fine. And we like those stories. And when suffering comes into our lives or, or trouble or a difficult decision, we want to run to them and say, God will make it okay. But how does Hebrews 11 end? Hebrews 11 says, I haven't got time to speak of the others who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword. We love the story of Daniel rescued from the lion's den. We're less keen on the story of the guy we've never heard of, whose name isn't even recorded, who was sawn in half for his obedience to God. We love Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego escaping the fires. We don't like the story of those who stood faithfully for their God and were burnt and died. There is no immediate promise of rescue for Esther. And many of our decisions in life will be like this. We won't know the outcome before we make them. There is simply no promise from God that if we do the right thing, it will work out immediately in short-term blessing. And it's really important we get hold of that because... Otherwise, when you make a decision that is obedient and it leads you to suffering, if you believe God had promised it would lead to blessing, then either you're going to start to think God isn't there or you got the decision wrong or that it's not worth following him. But in the very short term, there are no promises for Christians like that. And Esther seems to know that. That's why the whole scene ends, verses 15 to 17, with her agreeing to go 
but she knows, verse 16, I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She knows this might be it for her. Maybe that's it. But she resolves to do the courageous thing, the God-honouring thing, the right thing, without knowing the outcome. Uh, But she's wise. So she asks for three days of fasting, three days and nights before I go. Presumably that's fasting for prayer. Although the word prayer isn't mentioned, presumably because the word God isn't mentioned, the kind of religious language is, is hidden in Esther. But three days and nights, and then I'll go. Isn't it interesting, by the way, just by a bit of a side note, that the whole question of the salvation of God's people is going to be decided on the third day. Ring some bells, doesn't it? And so in one sense, Esther 4 leaves us hanging. We've seen a courageous decision, but we don't know the outcome. What are we to do with it? What are we to do with it centuries later? One question I guess we might ask ourselves is, would we have had the courage to make Esther's decision? Would we have walked in the paths of the martyrs who've gone ahead of us? The thing is, you, you know, most of you, that very likely you're never going to be called to lay down your life, literally to die for Jesus. It has happened to people in our nation over the years, but right now it's pretty unlikely. But, but how bad are we at dying daily for the sake of the gospel? How bad are we, to use Jesus' language, of taking up our cross daily? Of taking the path of suffering obedience rather than the path of luxury and glory now. Francis Schaeffer, who, who founded the denomination we're a part of, uh, in one of his sermons, talks about his, his walk home from school and he would cut across a, a rubbish dump. It's out in the States. And he says he, he really struck him walking home through his rubbish dump, past the sofas and the TVs and the fridges and the freezers and the air conditioning units, that, that this is all that the world was working for. That so much of their life was built towards buying these things and they ended up on the ash heap. He called the sermon Ash Heap Lives, in fact. We know, if we're honest, that so much of our time is invested in the here and now. We don't want the path of suffering and sacrifice. We want the life of Esther in the palace. And indeed, many times we'll compromise our faith and our obedience in order to secure the wine, women and song, the luxury now however scaled down it may be from a Persian empress, in order not to walk the path of suffering. So is Esther 4 just a a beat-up then? Look at brave Esther, and look how weak you are by comparison. Well, thank God not. Uh, In this book, Esther is called Queen 14 times, Queen Esther. Sometimes she's just Esther. 14 times in the book of Esther, she's called Queen Esther. 13 of the 14 come after she makes this decision. It seems that from now on, she's behaving like a real royal. This is real royal behavior. And in that sense, she is. Uh, She's a spotlight, a shadow perhaps better, of the true king to come. Uh, The questions we ask as she holds in her hand that decree of death are, will she go? 
Will she have the courage? Will she identify and say, yes, these are my people? Will she leave the palace of fasting, I'm sorry, feasting and wine and warmth and light and joy and go down into the darkness and risk death? And of course, that's exactly what the son of God, the true king of all creation did. There's Esther in the warmth of the palace. There's Jesus, children, in all the glory of heaven, all of paradise at his disposal. Would he leave it? There's Esther hearing from Mordecai the question, will you go and plead on behalf of your people? There's Jesus in heaven. And we're not his people. He is not a human being before he comes to earth. He has no natural tie to us, no duty to us. And yet he says, I will become one of them. I will step down, down to earth, down to the manger. I'll step down to the lowly life of a carpenter. The one who built the universe will sweat over planks and nails and hammers and saws. The one who constructed the stars and the planets is now going to humble himself to build sheds and mangers and door frames for Galilean peasants. Uh, There's Esther who holds in her hand this decree, this law of death. Up there in the palace, here is Jesus who says to his father, I am the Lord of life. I am the just judge who has signed with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, who has signed the eternal law that says the soul who sins must die. I am the one, as it were, whose signature is on the bottom of the bottom of the decree that should kill all people in justice, not as an act of wickedness like Haman, but in the just execution of God's holy anger against sinners. And yet, says Jesus, let me write my name on that bill. They are not my people, but make them my people. Let me pay for it. Even then, he had a problem, of course, if I can put it that way reverently. He is the son of God. He cannot die. God is the immortal God, children. Do you remember Paul calls God the immortal God? It means he can't die. So if Jesus just comes down as a man, he will not be able to die for us because God cannot die. You can't nail God to a cross. And so he says, I will become man. I will take on flesh all for their sake. Esther, here's Esther, who agreed to enter into the palace, the inner room. Do you see it's called that? Uh, the inner room uh, of Ahasuerus' palace, fearing that she might die. The whole palace so far has been described in Esther as a bit like the temple, the tabernacle. We saw that in, in chapter one, the description of it, the riches and the curtains and the purples and all the rest of it are only matched elsewhere in the Bible by the tabernacle. God's throne room. And the, God's throne room, too, has an inner place which you cannot enter without dying. To come into his presence means death. For Esther, she might be spared if I perish. Jesus says, I will come before you, Father, in all your naked holiness and wrath at sin. I will come before you unprotected, bearing that sin and wickedness. And he says, not if I perish, I perish, but I will perish. When I perish, I perish. And he knows what death means. We spend our life trying to avoid death. Stay fit. Lose weight. Eat healthy. Jesus chooses death 
in Gethsemane, it's shown to him how awful it will be. Children, do you remember? He sweats blood as God, as it were, reveals to him what he's about to go through on the cross. Everybody is against him. Earth is against him. His own people are against him. It is human rulers, both his own Jewish nation and the Gentiles, the rest of us, combine. Earth's mightiest forces bind him and nail him to a cross. Hell is against him. Satan tormenting, unleashing every attack to make Jesus stumble. And amazingly, even heaven itself is against him. The clouds cover the earth as Jesus is crucified. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is alone. Heaven, hell and earth against him, rejecting him. And yet in courage, in such courage, he presses on in order to rescue you and solely in order to rescue you. He need not have done it, but he does. And death is defeated, therefore. He dies, he lays down his life and takes it up again. And he transforms death for all those who put their trust in him, who identify with him, who say, yes, he is my rescuer. He transforms death from being this trap door that, that drops us out of the little paradises of our life, our little kind of Esther's palaces with all the luxuries we have now. Instead of being a trap door that leads us out of a glorious life now into darkness and despair and judgment into hell itself, he transforms do- uh, death into a doorway. A door into the, the king's palace, into Esther's palace. If you put your trust in Christ, then the moment of your death is the moment of the greatest transformation in your life. It is the moment that you will enter into a glory you cannot yet imagine. Into happiness, into pleasures, into a court, a palace, where the king is far kinder, where the pleasures are far greater than any Persian court. All that the Son of God did for you, freely. So let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, have you got any answer to death? That king says, you can have all this. I will pay for all your sins. You can count them on my shoulders. Your death can be safe in my hands. Just come to me and trust me. And if you're a Christian... Doesn't it, this call us to courage? Call us to courage. His courage, in a sense, enables ours, safeguards ours. It's not just an inspiring example. It means that actually any decision I take to walk after him and in his ways, whatever I lose for his sake, I've not really lost. Because the, only, the ultimate thing that anyone can take from me is my life. And if they do that, they're ushering me into glory, into Esther's palace, as it were. There are no real risks for Christians, therefore. No real losses. Think about life and death. Death terrifies us, even as Christians. If we're honest, even as Christians, it still worries us, doesn't it? We know it shouldn't do, but but it does. We have these little things in the back of our head. What's it actually like? And, and do I really believe it? And Jesus says, you're safe in my hands, even in your moment of death. You're safe in my hands, safe not by your confidence or understanding, but by my death. But in our life too, we can take risks, risks like, like Esther without knowing the earthly result, walking the path of holiness. It might mean losing something, losing a friendship, a relationship, a career promotion, 
exile from our family. It might mean all sorts of losses, but ultimately it's just gain. In the 19th century, there's a guy called John Patton, uh, who was a, a missionary, wanted to be a missionary to the New Hebrides, Vanuatu as it is now. And at this meeting, he, he said, um, he stood up and announced that he wanted to go to, to be a missionary to this, uh, at that time, uh, unreached island. And one old man stood up and said, but what about the cannibals? You'll be eaten by cannibals. The people were cannibalistic uh, back then. Mr. Dixon, replied the young missionary, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it'll make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> and there's someone who understands Esther 4, understands the gospel. He's safe. He's going to die. But he's totally safe. And the thing is, we love those stories. I was going to end the sermon there, but bad luck, you've got an extra minute. I was going to end the sermon there. We love those stories because we are not going to be eaten by cannibals. And so we can nod and smile and, you know, good old John Patton, and we're totally safe. But it is the day-to-day dying, suffering, that we, we won't do. So in the back of our heads, we store away, yeah, I'm with Patton. That's what I'd do because we know we're never going to have to. It's the day-to-day laying down your life, taking up your cross daily. The problem is we want to live in Esther's palace to shield ourselves from suffering, dirt, sackcloth, ashes, not to make hard decisions to walk in the ways of righteousness rather than sin. We want to live in glory now and then have glory later. But Jesus says, no, the way is the way of the cross. Lay down your life for the sake of others. Die now and live later. As we do say, nothing we give up compares to all that Jesus has given us and all that Jesus will give us in the future. Whatever it is God is calling you to do now, the future isn't certain. I can't tell you what will happen. But choose the path of obedience and you're in safe hands with a saviour who has won Persian glory and more for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we confess we are weak people, not courageous people. And we thank you that we're saved not by our courage, but by the courage of Christ who uh, walked uh, through hell itself in order to rescue us. And we ask now in your mercy that you would fill us with your spirit. And first of all, to look to him and see that we are safe in his hands, that he has done it all. And then to take up our crosses, uh, to count it uh, but a light thing, uh, to lose worldly pleasures for the sake of his name and for the sake of eternal glory. Uh, Give us the gift of your spirit in order that we might walk in the ways you've commanded, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.